We didn't mention it last week, but last week was the 504th anniversary of the occasion of this monk named Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. You see, Martin Luther, um, we, we say he, he discovered or rediscovered the gospel. I mean, he, he was not the only person, obviously, involved in this movement of God, and it was a movement of God. But, but what came from that was this rediscovery, if you will, that religion is not what man needs to have a right relationship with God. What Martin Luther discovered was I can't, make, I can't obey enough laws, I can't confess enough sin, I can't fast enough, I can't be a good monk enough to gain God's righteous approval. He recognized that. He said, and, or what he came to understand was that God freely offers that salvation. Not based on what Martin Luther did, but what on what God had done for Martin Luther through Christ. You see, Martin Luther became a monk because he was afraid of God's judgment. That was the reason that he made that decision to become a monk in what was the strictest monastery order of his day. And so he entered that monastery. He was afraid. He stayed awake at night worried about the fact that God had predestined him to wrath. That that was his lot in life. And in fact, every day as Martin Luther was making his way to teach there in the seminary or to confession or whatever, we're told that he passed a statue of Jesus there in Wittenberg, Germany, that was Jesus on the throne of judgment with two swords coming out of his mouth, like we saw here in Revelation. And Luther would rush past that statue or shield his eyes because he believed that that Jesus on the throne was judging him at that very moment. He couldn't stand to look at that statue. And so to try to find peace, Martin Luther would confess his sin sometimes up to six hours a day. The priests were dreading the moment when Martin Luther would enter the confessional booth. Because it could go on and on and on and on. And he believed that when he heard that priest say, I now absolve thee, that those sins were forgiven. But he also knew that the moment he left, he realized nothing really changed in his heart. In fact, what, what really frightened Martin Luther in regard to God's judgment was that he was going to be held accountable for sins that he didn't even know he'd committed. And so as he began to try to work through this, how can I confess what I don't even know? He just doubled his efforts. More fasting, more praying, more walking up and down the steps on his knees trying to seek penance from God. He said this, I was indeed a pious monk and kept the rules of my order so strictly that I can say, if ever a monk gained heaven through monkery, it should have been me. All my monastic brethren who knew me will testify to this. I would have martyred myself to death with fasting, praying, and reading, and other good works had I remained a monk much longer. But he said, my conscience could never achieve a certainty, but was always in doubt. It always said, you have not done this correctly. You were not contrite enough. You omitted this in your confession. So Luther said, therefore, the longer I tried to heal my uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more uncertain, weak, and troubled I continually made it. You see, I'm convinced that Martin Luther would have been very much so the exception today. 
He was worried about God's judgment. He was worried about standing before the judgment seat of God. And I'm not convinced that there's a lot of people that would fall into that camp today. One commentator that I use throughout this series has said, no subject strikes terror into the human heart like the thought of standing before God on judgment day, knowing that we must each give the full account of those things that we have done. I'm just not sure that's the case. I'm just not sure. In fact, I'm fairly confident that most people really don't think too much about eternity. Now, sure, that's the exception when the doctor's diagnosis comes in, or that's the exception when a loved one is facing that. Most of the time, I don't think most of us think about that, but that's where we are today in Revelation 20. Now, we're about to get into, in Revelation chapter 21, what many would say, and I would agree, is the best part of the book. The new heavens and the new earth. Heaven. We're about to to come to this place where we're going to hear next week, Lord willing, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. I can't wait. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We're going to hear that from the throne. But before we can go there, we have to stop at the end of Revelation chapter 20. Because this very throne that will one day make its dwelling place among men in the new heaven and the new earth, this throne is the stopping point for every human being. I believe it's the stopping point for human history. And so before we hear this good news from the throne, we have to come before the throne and and think about and hear about judgment. So let me just go ahead and kind of tell you how I'm approaching this today, okay? But it'll be different from some other commentators or preachers that you've heard or just because they're just like we saw last week, okay? You know, remember, you can be amillennial, you can be premillennial, you can be postmillennial, you can be panmillennial, that is just all going to pan out. And all those different viewpoints are going to have a different opinion in some ways on the end of chapter 20, on what this judgment really represents and how humanity will deal with this judgment, how we'll, how we'll face it. And, and some believe that not everyone will stand before this throne of judgment that we see in Revelation 20, that there indeed will be separate judgments at separate times. And I, don't, I, I just don't see it that way, okay? Now, what's difficult about this for me, as I said last week, I lean toward a historical premillennial position myself personally, but even this, my position on the great white throne judgment doesn't line up with the predominant premillennial view. So I, I really don't know that I fit into any of these camps necessarily. In the end, I don't really believe it makes a whole lot of difference, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But for those who make the distinction, here's the basis of that. They say that the great white throne judgment that we see here in Revelation 20 is for the unbelievers. That what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul talks about we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive what's due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And, And the word there is in the Greek language is bima. It's this judgment seat. And so... Many hold the distinction that there is a Bema seat of judgment for believers and the great white throne judgment for unbelievers. I 
I struggle with making that distinction based on a lot of different passages, both in the Old and the New Testament. For instance, in Matthew chapter 25, I think this is Jesus' clear word about the judgment. He says in Matthew 25 and verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him, then He'll sit on His glorious throne, and before Him will be gathered all the nations. Now some hold that when He says that, He's going to be judging nationalities and determining whether they can enter the millennial kingdom or not. No place does it tell us that Jesus is judging nations in that sense. I don't think that's what this says. But he says, before him will be gathered all the nations. I think that's all of humanity. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Then down in verse 41, he speaks to those on his left. And he says, depart from me, you cursed, and are eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they'll go away into eternal punishment. So... The picture we have there from Jesus is there will be one judgment and all of humanity will stand before him. Paul says in Romans 14, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. As it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Later on in chapter 22, Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I'll give to everyone according to what he has done. Now, there is a huge, eternal distinction between standing before God and being condemned for our works, done outside of Christ, if you will. There's a huge difference between standing before God and being condemned for our works and sentenced to eternity in in hell and being assessed for our works done in righteousness and being rewarded. And I think that's what will happen. I think there will be a separation. I think some will be condemned. Some will be commended. And so, either way, I believe we're facing the judgment. All right? Revelation 20 is the last judgment. There will not be another one. And I think that's where we've come to. Scripture says that this final judgment will in some way, and and again, even if you look at different times in a different setting, Judgment will involve all of humanity. Every human being will stand before the judgment seat of its maker. And so we come, I come very heavily, if you will, just burdened with, with this passage in this sermon. It, it's been on my heart and on my mind for weeks. You know, I was kind of dreading the millennium because I just didn't get it. I dread this because I do. I do get this. I mean, I don't dread it personally, and neither should you if you're in Christ. But but this is a hard message. This is a hard reality that we come to here. This is what John says in our passage. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's there's three headings in your sermon notes, three, I think, ways to to get a better understanding or at least begin to work on how to make our way through this passage. One is to focus on the, the throne itself, this great white throne of judgment. Secondly, focus on the one who is on the throne. And, and we will do that in, in that first section. Next, we will think about those who stand before the throne. Who, who, who are? Who are we? Who are they? And then thirdly, what is the judgment that comes from the throne? What, what transpires here? J.T. prayed. I, I think it's good that we do that again. Lord, we, we ask you to see with eyes of faith this morning as we uh, take a few minutes. And Lord, as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, the, the veil is opened, the door is opened, and we're able to see things, Lord, that are spiritual truths. One day this will, we believe, I believe, Lord, be a physical reality. This, this will take place. And, and so, Father, I pray that we would see that with eyes of faith. And Lord, I pray that... Even if there is someone here today in this room or will hear this online or hear it later, uh, that, Lord, maybe eyes of faith would be opened, that a heart would be regenerated, and that, um, Lord, this reality of coming judgment for every person who's ever drawn a breath um, will do a work in us. This, this word would do a work in us, Lord. Um, so anyway, Father, we, just, we thank you for your word today. Um, Father, be the one that teaches us and leads us through it by your Holy Spirit, I pray in Christ's name. So, the judge on this great white throne. Now, the throne, obviously, is, is at the center. But right now, we've sung about that this morning. It has been throughout the book of Revelation. I mean, in fact, 30 times or more in the book of Revelation, we're referred to the throne. And it's at the center in chapter 4. The door is open, John sees the throne there, and then in chapter 5 he sees the Lamb who was slain standing as the lion there at the throne. So this throne is throughout critically important. Now one thing that's also important for us that we've talked about all along, lots of times people read the book of Revelation and want to make it somehow the means by which we see the future. And certainly it is a prophecy. But it is also a letter that was written to those people in that day that John wrote to. And I believe when he wrote that, they would have most naturally, when they heard this being read about the throne and books being opened and about this glory of the one seated on the throne, their minds would have gone back to the book of Daniel. Because there, in fact, if you want to turn over to Daniel chapter 7, listen to what Daniel sees as he records this for us. Daniel says, and, and I saw, well, let's go up in verse 9. And I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head is pure like wool. His throne was very, his throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousand, thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And then I looked because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed. His body destroyed, was given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And then in verse 13, 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the, cloud of he- with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel saw a throne. He saw glory on it. He saw fire issuing from it. He saw books open. He saw judgment being carried out. And that's what we have here in Revelation chapter 20. The same consistency, that same picture of God's work. It's great in size, yes, but it's great in significance. This is where human history is going. All the Eastern religions say what? Reincarnation. If we get it wrong this time, we have another chance. The reason the caste system in India has been so hard to break over the generations is because of this belief in reincarnation. They're in that caste because they just didn't get it the last time, and so they're lower next time instead of higher. But no, it's not a circular. It's linear, and it's coming to an end at the throne of God. That's why it's significant. It's great in its purity and its righteousness. It's pure and righteous and glorious and white because of the one who is seated on it. It's representing his power and his purity. It's great in the victory that it represents. That's what we've just seen. The dragon, the beast, those that have followed him have been conquered. And now they're about to be called to account. The cries of the martyrs in Revelation chapter 6, they're being answered. It's, It's the throne of victory. It's also great because of the one seated on it. In Revelation chapter 22, we will see this. The angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. God is on the throne, but again, the mysterious reality of the Godhead. God the Father and God the Son are there. And so Jesus is on this throne. And it's important we recognize the glory of that, understand the significance of that. Jesus said this in John 5, The Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Later on in 527, he says, He has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. We read in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes with all of his, in all of his glory, with all of his angels, he will judge all of humanity. The nations will be gathered before him. The message of the early church in the book of Acts, in that pagan, philosophy-filled world, was he has commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he has appointed, that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead, talking about Jesus. In Acts chapter 17, as Paul was speaking to the philosophers there in Athens, he said, The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he's given assurance by raising him from the dead. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. This is Jesus, gentle and lowly, whom Dane Ortland says rightly in his book, Gentle and Lowly, his natural posture is that not of a pointed finger, but of open arms. But this is the Son of Man in all of his glory. And that same Son of Man who comes in judgment with the sword of judgment coming out of his mouth to strike down his enemies. And his judgment is perfect. In John 5, Jesus said, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, but my judgment is just. And Isaiah foresaw and prophesied about this judgment and this judge. He says in Isaiah 11, 
Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions of the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. His judgment will be perfect. And the cosmic reaction to this judgment is, it, it, it's amazing. It, it, it's hard to understand. It says, earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place found for them. What in the world? Well, like all of Revelation, it's filled with apocalyptic language and it's hard to understand exactly what will transpire here. It's hard to understand in some ways how this relates to what we're going to read in the next chapter about the new heavens and the new earth. But here's what here's what's easy to understand in this. And we've already seen it in the book of Revelation. In chapter six, when the sixth seal was open, John said, I watched as he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as late figs fall from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place, for the great day of the wrath has come. And who can stand? Well, the answer we saw in the next chapter, those who are sealed in Christ, they stand. Everybody else prays for the mountains and the hills to fall on them, even as the mountains and hills seem to be running and fleeing. In Revelation 16, John said, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, And out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there were flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. And no earthquake like this had ever occurred since that man had been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. And he says, Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. Now, I don't understand how this will play out in that great day. The new heavens and the new earth, will they be made up of the elements that are a part of this fallen, broken, unredeemed world now? Or will it all be remade from scratch? You know, will God just recreate it? Peter seems to tell us in Second Peter chapter 3 that the heavens and the earth that now exist, that are called the first heaven and the first earth later on in Revelation, are gone Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And that day will bring about the destructions of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, Peter says. I really don't care how he does it, you know. But this cosmic response, this earth that's groaning under the weight of sin that Paul talks about, is going to be changed in a moment when this takes place. The entire universe will be renewed. So here's Jesus sitting on the throne in the heavens and the earth, fleeing. You know what else this should remind us of? My mind went back to to the book of Hebrews because we're told there that 
this one Jesus upholds this world through his powerful word. And in Hebrews 1 verse 10, it says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will all be changed, but you remain the same and your ears, your years will never end. Jesus is more permanent than the creation itself. And He's the one seated on the throne. On this great, magnificent, holy, pure, righteous throne. Well, what about those that are judged? It says the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now, part of the challenge is how do we reconcile what we read here with what we've just read? And in some ways, you know, I'm a whole lot like Forrest Gump. I am not a smart man. And so I'm working through this, you know, kind of, all right, prayerfully, humbly. And And it just, it seems to me pretty clear in one way. John has just said in Revelation chapter 20, look up at verse 4. I saw the souls who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. In Revelation 20, John, like Daniel, sees judgment day equated also to a resurrection day. And as those who John just refers to in the earlier part of Revelation 20 are raised, I believe what we see there is that the redeemed, those who have not worshipped the beast, those who have not bore the mark, those martyrs who have shed their blood and given their life because they love Jesus more than they did their own lives, we see them raised. I don't think that causes an issue with what we see happening here as the rest are raised, as others are brought to life. And so what we see here is the resurrection, I believe, of all those who have died. We've already seen the redeemed raised. And now what seems to be here is the bodies and the persons of those who others who have died are now raised. And notice that they're raised from these places where all throughout the book of Revelation and really in the New Testament, we've seen it seems this is the place where the dead go in some ways. Those who are brought back, it says, from the seas, the the sea will give up its dead. I think about that every time I see a a burial at sea. Today's Veterans Day. And we need to be thankful and mindful of those who have served us. We need to remember that. And we need to be thankful for those who serve us now in uniform and those who have done so before. And how many times have we seen those videos, those images of that burial at sea? That wrapped body lowered over the side, just dropped into the ocean. Well, what about them? What happens at the resurrection for them? What about those who are somehow consumed? What about those who, you know, Mount Vesuvius when the, when the volcano erupted? What about those who are just turned to ash? What about this? What about, we could go on and on and on. 
I believe with all my heart they're going to be raised. They're going to be raised physically to stand before the judgment seat of God. And I, and I really appreciate what Andy Davis says when he's talking about this, because one of the things Andy says in this that I think just, just helped me a whole lot just grasp this. He says the resurrection will be fit for what we face for eternity. And what he says by that, it says the resurrection of the wicked will fit their bodies for hell. Isaiah 66, 24, and they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. The resurrection body of those who are unredeemed will be destroyed forever. Not destroyed in the sense that they stop existing. Well, the same is true for the redeemed. The resurrection of the righteous, Andy says, will fit eternity in heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that's sown imperishable is in, is perishable, it's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. So we'll be raised with whatever is appropriate for what comes next. So they stand. The sea gives up its dead. Death and Hades are personified here. But that realm of the dead, that place where the dead go, they are brought back to life. And not only are they brought back to life, but death and Hades itself then, this last enemy death is done away with. That's what we need to take away from that. What does it mean that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire? There's no more death. We'll see that in the next chapter. No more tears of mourning. No more crying over the pain and the agony of death. These books are opened. There's books and then a book. And as I was thinking through this, praying through this, my mind went back to the book of Ezekiel. Why in the world would... Well, let me just read you this, Ezekiel 36. Verse 24, the prophet says, speaking for God, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. A new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you know what I see as these books are opened here? As we are judged before this great white throne? These books reveal what only God can see and that which God records perfectly. Every word, every deed that that stone-cold, unregenerate heart produces. Every thought, every action, every intention that comes from that one where self is seated on the throne, where they bought into the city of Babylon and its lies and its pursuits and its priorities. Everything that we would think is hidden is recorded and brought to light. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus told us, I am he who searches hearts and minds. I will repay each of you according to your deeds. In 1 Corinthians 4, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of men's hearts. Romans 2.16, on that day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, Jesus said this, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed in Luke chapter 12 or hidden that will not be made known. 
And what you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Jesus says, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So these books are opened. The Bible tells us that God records the tears, but he also records the words, the thoughts, the intentions, the ambitions, the motives. And these books are opened. Danny Aiken says, Human language is incapable of describing both the glories of heaven and the horrors of hell. Take all the images that appear in the Bible, including the lake of fire and the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, and then multiply it 10 billion times, and you still do not have an adequate description of those who experience this second death. Dr. Aiken reminds us of Jonathan Edwards as he tried to illustrate that horror in that famous or infamous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Edwards said, The pit is prepared, the fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit has opened her mouth under them. O sinner, consider the fearful danger that you are in. Now, we struggle through this. We've already seen this earlier in chapter 19. This idea that God will be praised for all of eternity, even as the smoke goes up from hell forever and ever, we struggle with that. I understand that. I also appreciate what Matt Chandler said in regard to this. He says, if God is not most concerned about his namesake, then hell ultimately exists. And excuse me, let me start over. If God is most concerned about his namesake, then hell ultimately exists because of the belittlement of God's name. And therefore, our response to the biblical reality of hell cannot, for our own safety, be further belittlement of God's name. Someone who says hell cannot be real or we can't all deserve it even if it is real because God is love is saying that the name and the renown and the glory of Christ aren't that big of a deal after all. So the books are opened. And the consequence of what is found there as those who are cast into this lake of fire, which is the second death, is contrasted with those whose name was not found in the book of life, or at least there's that contrast there with that phrase that we've seen before, the book of life. We've heard it four times so far in the book of Revelation, two in a negative sense and one in a positive. Excuse me, two and two. In Revelation 3, Jesus made this promise. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. In a negative sense, in Revelation 13, all who dwell on the earth will worship, talking about the beast, and everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, of the Lamb who was slain. So those whose name is not in the book is marked by those who are as contrasted with those who are worshiping the beast. Same thing in Revelation 17. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. 
And as if we need that final reminder, we will see in Revelation 21, nothing unclean will ever enter what we see as the new heavens and the new earth, nor anyone who, is what, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the books are opened. And the books are open for those who are unredeemed, unregenerate, those who have rebelled and rejected Christ and followed the beast and followed the dragon, contrasted with those whose names are written in the book of life. Hearts of stone will be seen for what they are, and new hearts will be revealed and rewarded for what they are. So even though all humanity, I believe, will appear before the judgment seat, This is not a judgment day that I need to be afraid of. And this is not a judgment day that if today you stand in Christ, sealed by His blood, having trusted in Him, you don't have to be afraid of that either. You see, the day that many humans fear or should, the Christian doesn't have to fear because our judgment day is past tense. It's past tense. Our judgment day is Good Friday. Our judgment day is when Jesus hung on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus suffered the alienation. Jesus suffered the wrath. Jesus suffered the judgment. And when He said, It is done, it is done. Amen? It is done. And He has taken that wrath upon Himself. And we will appear before the judgment seat of God. Yes, we will, but we will do so clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Not fearing what may come from that throne. Because what could come from that throne on those who have not responded to God's sweet grace has already been poured out on Christ on behalf of those who have trusted in Him. So yeah, the books are open, but we don't need to be afraid if we're in Christ. Christ's perfect obedience has been credited to us. So the differences in interpretation and analysis, well, who's going to be there and when will it be? I I really don't, in the end, it's not a cop-out. I just see that if we're in Christ, we don't have to be afraid. And if today you are not in Christ, you have much to fear. But it's not too late. It's not. Here's, here's some things I just think it's good for us to take away from this, okay? These are not in your sermon notes. I can, I can post these. Um, and you can just jot them down if you want to. Like I said, I'm not a smart man, but this much I know. First off, Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. He will return. And I believe every human will be involved in this final judgment in one way or another. Do not let the delay put you to sleep. Paul talked about that in the book of Romans. This delay, this seeming inactivity on the part of God, does that in some way betray the fact that he really doesn't care or isn't going to do anything? The psalmist said in Psalm 10, verse 4, In the pride of his face the wicked does not seek him. All his his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. 
And as for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. So it is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. David said that in Psalm 53. Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Second thing I know, based on the previous passage and this, is the inclinations of the human heart have not changed. They have not changed. Remember in, in, in the earlier part of chapter 20, the, where we saw the dragon captive, in, in, in some way incarcerated, some way bound for this thousand years, for this millennium period, and then he comes forth at the end for just a short period of time, and it's, it's brief. Like John MacArthur says, it's not a battle, it's a massacre, but he still comes forth and he leads astray so many. And if the millennium is true, and I believe that it is in some way, then under the perfect reign of Jesus, with no sin in the world, no Satan opposing us, still the inclination of the unregenerate human heart is to follow Satan when they have the opportunity. The fool says in his heart there is no God, David said in Psalm 53. They are corrupt, doing abominable abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Yes, you've heard that in the New Testament as well as Paul quoted it. The inclination of the human heart has not changed. Thirdly, God knows that inclination. He knows it perfectly. He sees it perfectly and he records every deed, every word, every thought. What God saw in Genesis 5 to be the case there in the days of Noah, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It has not changed. And God still sees it today. But you want to know what's crazy? The gospel is... That as God knows these things and sees these things, He makes a way for rescue. He makes a way for us to escape the coming judgment. Paul says in Romans 5, Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if even when we were still enemies, God reconciled us to Him through the death of His Son, how much more now having been reconciled shall we be saved through His life? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that that Jesus, the Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Oh, listen, in just a second. We kind of did it this way so we'd have a little more time at the end for for more singing and more worship. And part of the reason for that is is just an old-fashioned altar call. Just an old-fashioned opportunity for you to trust in Christ. And not that you need to come forward and take my hand, no. But just in the quiet of the moment as we sing a hymn, the Spirit of God would work through the Word of God to reveal to you your destiny outside of Christ. And it is a devil's hell. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. And you go, oh, well, but it's not. No, no, it is that bad. Every thought, every inclination, every intention, every ambition is recorded and will be revealed. And God loves you enough to send His Son to rescue you from that. 
One other thing, the outpouring of that wrath will be, as we see there, for all of eternity. And guess what? God will be glorified through it. Revelation 19. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Hallelujah. The smoke of her goes up forever and ever. You may just have to take that by faith, church, but the amazing grace of God that we sing about today will be demonstrated for all of eternity in the grace that saves and in the holy wrath that judges. Dorothy Sayers was a real close friend to C.S. Lewis. I've been doing some reading on her this week. I had read some of her essays before. I did it because of something I spoke at this earlier this week at a men's conference. But Dorothy Sayers was a close friend to C.S. Lewis. She died in 1957. And when it came to the doctrine of hell, she brings about, a, she gives us a really insightful thought from an essay she wrote called The Matter of Eternity. Here's what Dorothy Sayers said. And this is this proper English lady, okay? I can just kind of hear her saying this. There seems to be a kind of conspiracy, especially among middle-aged writers of vaguely liberal tendency, to forget or conceal where the doctrine of hell comes from. One finds frequent references to, quote, cruel and abominable doctrine of hell, unquote, or, quote, the childish and grotesque medieval imagery of physical fire and worms, unquote. But this case is quite otherwise. Let us face the facts. The doctrine of hell is not medieval. It is Christ's. It is not a device of medieval priestcraft for frightening people into giving money to the church. It is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. The imagery of the undying worm in the unquenchable fire derives not from medieval superstition, but from the prophet Isaiah. And it was Christ who emphatically used it. One cannot rid of it without tearing the New Testament to tatters. We cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. Yes, we will glorify God for His grace and His judgment. And finally, believer, God wants us free from the fear of judgment. Not free from the conscious awareness that He still sees and knows and records all. But free from the fear of judgment. He wants us aware of the fact that we are accountable for the grace given to us in the sense that every work we do will be judged by Him. But it's not a judgment of condemnation. It's a judgment of reward. And I don't have the time nor the knowledge to get into all of that right now. But we will not be judged as believers and face condemnation. And one writer, I believe, has rightly said that when he says he will wipe away every tear, those may be tears of regret in what we could have done but didn't do for him. But it won't be tears of remorse over sin or the fear of condemnation. He does not want us living in fear. John says so in 1 John 4. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in His love abides in God, and God abides in Him. And we often use this verse, by the way, when we're talking to each other about just being afraid of fear. I've done that hundreds of times. But the context is judgment. The context is eternal judgment. By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. God's judgment and wrath poured out on Jesus frees us from the fear of that. 
You know what? It also frees us to forgive. Because God will take care of it. I can forgive you and entrust you. I can forgive my enemy and entrust him and serve him and love him, as Paul says, and heap burning coals on his head through that love and service, knowing that God will take care of that. It's not up to me to do it. So the coming wrath of God at the judgment seat frees me up to be the Jesus with open arms, not the one with pointed fingers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture that we see here, even as for some, I pray that it is troubling. For many, I pray that it is encouraging, that it fills us with hope and confidence and fills us with praise and worship because of your amazing grace. Holy Spirit, I pray you take your word. I pray you take the good news of the gospel and penetrate every single heart that hears my voice. Penetrate that heart with conviction over their sin and a desire to be free of that condemnation. Penetrate the hearts of your children, Lord, with just a fierce sense of of worship and praise and thanksgiving for the grace that you've poured out on us, as undeserved and as richly poured out as it is. Lord Jesus, you're worthy of our praise, and you will be praised for all of eternity. Help us do that now, and help us do it with our lives as we leave this place, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.